Hello and welcome to Mouthwash, fresh chat that leaves you feeling confident Monday to Friday with me, your host, Paul Armstrong, creator of the TBD Conference. Interviewing powerful people is easy, but that's not the Mouthwash way. Instead, we're exploring the less obvious elements of power this season. What's really driving the world? Who's behind the scenes trying to keep the wheels on? Who's got power? Who wants it? How do you get it? We're exploring it all. Joining me every episode is a smart cookie of my choosing, and tonight's cookie is none other than Babylon Health's Erin Lee. Uh, welcome to the show, Erin. How are you doing? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me. Amazing. Amazing. All right. Before I chat more with Erin, let's talk about where we are and how you can get involved. Twitter Spaces is still a beta product from Twitter, so let's explore it a bit. On the mobile app, the top bit where you can see the tweets at the moment are called The Nest, and I or any speaker can put tweets like the ones you see up there. Mouthwash uses this to discuss them in the section we call Desert Island Tweets, and you can click through to follow accounts, links. It's pretty handy and a very unique feature to Twitter Spaces. You can see all of your faces and the speakers are at the top. Speakers, uh, spaces allows up to 11 speakers at a time, including the host, so you can still have a really good chat, multiple voices, but you don't have to have a massive mic fest and people talking over each other. If you're in a space, you can request the mic at any time by clicking the bottom left uh, little mic icon uh, and mute yourself as well. Um, but we don't actually use that um, on Mouthwash. It's more of a show format. Um, instead, we take questions via the hashtag Mouthwash Show. If you click the blue uh, link at the top that says Mouthwash Show, you don't even have to type it in. That's how good Twitter is. Uh, Twitter's also recently introduced a slew of monetization features, so you know that they're very, very serious about spaces and making this work. If you look at the bottom right of your phone screens now, now you'll see some icons, some dots, some people, a heart, and that sort of stuff. The dots are where all the settings are, so you can turn on captions and there's other accessibility features there as well, so it's a highly inclusive tool. Okay, the big one. Time to share out this space. Let's do some audience participation. So please join me and click on the icon on the right, the little staple with the arrow pointing up. Uh, and if you click that and then click share via tweet, You'll actually create a tweet that will go out to uh, the world and that sort of stuff and let them know where you're at uh, and that you want them to listen in. Uh, I recommend you do that not only because it's very nice when you're in spaces, but also because a tree gets planted courtesy of the very smart folks over at Ecology who make offsetting carbon footprints super easy. So if you want to find out more about that, it's ecology.com. That's E-C-O-L. OGI.com and whether it's for you or your business Elliot and the team are great partners to work with and I've been very lucky to have them for TBD partners for many many years Thanks also to Shell for sponsoring the show. Shell's recently published a target to be a net zero emissions energy business by 2050 or sooner. Obviously, that's in step with society. Find out how Shell is powering progress over at shell.com forward slash powering progress. All right. It's time now to shower Erin in a frankly embarrassing amount of emojis. So if you click the heart with a plus and you begin showering her while I tell you more about her, uh, don't stop until the end. So find the heart down the bottom. Decide which ones you want to use. Use multiple, just one. It's completely up to you. It's Friday night after all. Um, and ready, steady, go. Okay. Erin is VP of Global Operations and Managing Director of Babylon US. Babylon is a London-based telehealth startup that leverages machine learning and other forms of AI to produce to provide users with primary care around the world. So whether that's through the website or mobile apps, users pay either through a subscription or a pay-as-you-go uh, mechanic to get medical advice, referrals through video, text, and photo data that gets sent to real doctors. 
Previously with Uber as Director of Community Operations for Northern Europe and Middle East, uh, she was also Head of EMEA Innovation for them, uh, and also worked for Google, where she was all about making money for Larry and Sergey via the new product strategy and operations part. Erin has been with Babylon since 2018 and works across the globe, thanks to Babylon having operations in, here's the list, Canada, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, United States, and they also provide services in um, Cambodia, Hong Kong, India, Indonesia, Laos, um, Malaysia, Philippines, Singapore, Taiwan, Thailand, and Vietnam. So it shouldn't be any surprise that they have 20 million users already. Erin is scaling the US business to deliver Babylon's core mission of making healthcare accessible and affordable globally. Erin leads the global clinical operations at Babylon as well as leading teams in charge of delivering the services strategy and operations. I don't know how she does it but we're going to talk about it. Babylon's a double unicorn with two billion valuation and that covers more than 20 million people that I mentioned. Since being founded the team has raised more than half a billion dollars and recently added another 100 million on this series C. Uh, investors include DeepMind and Centene. Uh, full disclosure, I am a Babylon Health user and have been for a couple of years now. I haven't really had to use the service. Uh, thank you. Um, thank you, anyone, who are whatever omnipotent being you pray to. Um, but I know it's there. And as I get older, it seems sensible having something like that in my pocket. Um, I couldn't think of a better company to talk about telemedicine, sort of the future of health. So, Erin, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. That is the kindest introduction I have ever had. Oh, excellent. Oh, well, I hope they haven't been that. But anyway, okay. um, tell me, what was the first thing you thought of when you woke up this morning? The first thing I thought of, thank God it's Friday. Yeah, it's a bit of a rough week. <laughs> I think every week is rough, like in a good way. It's, you're excited for Monday to start, but you're also very relieved for Friday. Oh, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure everyone's always excited for Monday, but uh, I'm definitely. I don't know. I've, throughout this last period, and I want to talk about that in a minute. It seems to be like the weeks just merge a little bit more than they did before, and that sort of stuff. I think people, you know, find it hard to get those sort of like peaks where they sort of have it. But I, I hear some people are getting back to normal. Other people are saying it's never been weirder and that sort of stuff. But how have the last eighteen months been for you guys? Um, you know, I think we experience what everyone feels like to your point, the nebulousness of time. I think there's no like reference point. So everything sort of blends together. I think, you know, professionally and, and as a business, I think it's been, you know, it's probably been one of the busiest years we've ever had. Mm. Um, and it's been great. It's, I guess, you know, it's sort of in poor taste to say that, but, you know, the sort of the impetus that the pandemic had has been really um, an accelerator for a lot of digital health companies such as ourselves. Definitely. I want to talk about that as well. Okay, so we're going to talk about telemedicine, Babylon and the future. Those are our main three. But let's okay. start with the big theme of health. I picked this as I really think um, it's a source of strength that we take for granted, actually. And most people don't think of it as a power lever that they have to pull. Um, when, it, when you have bad health, you sort of disadvantage yourself. You're a whim of other forces and you sort of let your power go if that makes sense i think it's important to realize the medical world isn't an equal uh, playing field across the globe lots of places have lots of different issues for different reasons um but new options are available at, that are helping millions if not billions of people um health consumes what over 10 percent of the gdp for most developed nations uh, and can form massive parts of countries economies us being a key one erin healthcare who's got the power in health and why is it so unequal for something so fundamental uh, starting with the easy questions. Okay. Um, yeah. Who's got the power in health? Well, I think, you know, we're sort of at an inflection point on that uh, now. I would say historically, I think the perception is that sort of the payers, the insurers, 
um, you know, those that sort of pay for healthcare have had much of the power. Um, but I think that's changing. And I think that's, that's probably a really good thing for both outcomes and consumer experience. Mm. Um, the power of good health isn't just smart for an individual. It's, it's a, a life choice enabler, right? How, tell me a bit about where you as a company or you individually, if you want to go that route, well, see how health plays out for the world sort of in the next 10, 15, 20 years. So I think, you know, as you sort of mentioned in the lead up, I think for a lot of folks in a, in a lot of different countries around the world, health or even sort of the ability to focus on health is really a privilege. Um, and so much of quote unquote healthcare today is really actually focused on sick care. Um, and really what we're doing at Babylon is, is trying to change that dynamic. And we're trying to use our you know, multi-channel dynamic toolkit to make sort of this concept of managing your own health and really taking control, being your own advocate, more accessible to people around the world. So it's not just about sick care. It's not just about reactive care. It's really being more proactive and owning sort of your health. Mm. Pharma companies are incredibly powerful, um, especially in the US. I feel like a stranglehold might be a fair sort of um, explanation or, or picture to paint. Um, how do they cling on to their power? And what do you think it's going to take to disrupt them? You know, I think the dynamics of pharmaceuticals in the US uh, culture is probably a, a very rich sociological study. I mean, what I think you start from sort of, you know, they sell magic and hope in a pill, right? I think um, in many cases, you know, they're offering you a life or death solution. How do you sort of walk away from that? And so I think really what they've done is they've optimized profiting off of this fee for service model of healthcare, which really focuses on people once they've become ill. And in parallel, they do a really great job of convincing people that they're constantly sick. You know, anyone who's spent any time in the U.S. will, you know, that like every other commercial is for a drug ad for a disease you didn't know you had. So, yeah. you know, I think they've done a really a good job at sort of, I guess, exploiting the system. That was one of the first things that struck me. My first trip to the U.S. was with my sister. We uh, stayed in a New York hotel and I said, have you turned on the telly? And she was like, we you're like, no, I was getting ready. We're going out. And I was like, oh, my God, you've got to turn on the telly. It, it's so true. The the adverts are like you've heard, you know, that sort of thing. It's like death is imminent, you know, that sort of stuff. And like you say, they have crazy names, which no one sort of knows and that sort of stuff. But it's it, it's an absolute industry. And I wouldn't say a racket because obviously it is helping people and that sort of stuff. But they do have massive amounts of control, don't they? But that is usually just to sort of give them their view if that makes sense they do have good reasons to to charge prices not all the time but a lot of the time because of the patents that they get on um uh, the drugs and that's something for a certain amount of years is that fair can you explain that just ever so quickly yeah absolutely i mean we all benefit from the investment that phar pharma companies make in new innovations and not all of those work out and i you know i think it's it's absolutely reasonable to expect businesses to profit off of, you know, the research and the innovation and development that they do. And, you know, I think COVID vaccines and cancer treatments, you can't fault them. We're all better for having those treatments. But I think there's probably a balance. Mm. All right, let's talk about telemedicine specifically. Babylon does a lot, um, but mostly it's known for telemedicine. Um, let's talk about that broadly before we talk generally about Babylon and where, where you're going. Um, how would you describe telemedicine to people who have never heard the term before? Um, it's a Zoom call with your doctor, or it's a FaceTime call 
with your clinician. Love it. Um, what's the biggest misconception people have about telemedicine? Um, I think that it's somehow lesser than an uh, uh, in, in-person interaction or it's just sort of a pill mill for urgent care issues. I think, you know, that may have been true historically in the early days, but I, I think those are probably unfair uh, descriptors. Yeah, I, I think when, when I spoke about it to a few friends, I went, oh, that's for just rich people, isn't it? And I went, it's really not. <laughs> no, no. It, and also, I kind of feel like it's helping overburden systems because sometimes, you know, you've got extra help and that sort of stuff. So it, it kind of helps, especially during these times. You know, a lot of people have felt bad about going to A&E, whereas before they would have, you know, not for a scraped knee, that, that belittles things. But, but you know, the, the minor ailments that they maybe could have done this, it really does feel like sometimes the service... Um, almost could be a nationalized element, but we'll come on to that a little bit later. Um, telemedicine can be a game changer for all, um, but it really demands infrastructure to be in place that a lot of the a lot of the countries around the world just simply don't have. Let's talk about real power in this field. When it comes to power structures in the telemedicine world, who's powerful and who controls what in the industry? You know, I would say that actually the most, the, the biggest power players even today are, are really the governments that are setting the regulations in terms of what can and cannot be treated digitally or via telemedicine. And I think, of course, um, there is usually good reason for regulation. Uh, I think it's also safe to say that quite a few, you know, laws and, and regulations in this space are quite uh, egregiously outdated. So it was good to see uh, the pandemic really kickstart some real change in this space. But, you know, in my opinion, it's it's really the governments that are holding a lot of the power today. And what, why are they stopping you from helping billions of people? You know, they sort of decide, let's take the, you know, the United States, for example, they decide, you know, what you can and cannot treat for things like Medicaid and Medicare, what type of interaction you can have with a patient, what what will or will not be, you know, billed or is billable, compensated, what is or is not even legal, right? What what you can prescribe. And again, we're seeing a lot of innovation in this space, but they sort of set the rules, they set the tone. And when, obviously, the U, I, I always say the US is a special case because when it comes to health and medicine, it's a racket, right? They've got, yeah. they got sorted and it feels quite sort of stayed. Things are changing and I think personal preference sort of comes into that. But there is that sort of like locking you into like what insurance plan and the terrifying nature of taking them to the A&E where they're crying more about the bill they'll get rather than their broken leg. Um, it feels sort of broken in that sort of sense. When it comes to telemedicine, it can't do everything. And I think that's fair to say. People still need to be poked and prodded once in a while. Um, how does how do you sort of factor that in? Doesn't doesn't it break the model? So we really see it as an accelerator for the rest of the healthcare system. So we don't really, you know, at Babylon we provide digital primary care, which is really end to end, and it's an integrated part of the NHS system via GP at hand, for example. And and really what our goal is is we appreciate the necessity of a physical interaction or the importance of getting someone to a specialist or an ER visit when they need it. But there's a lot of individuals that are using the wrong channel of care. And so our goal is to really be sort of a super triage, right? Get people to the right care at the right time that's appropriate for them. And mm. so what we're really trying to do is actually free up capacity for doctors in their offices to see more patients that need, you know, to, to be poked and prodded, to use your term, or to free up emergency room beds for those that are truly in need and really to take the burden off digitally for those coughs and colds and things that are better served remotely. So we mm. really see it as an accelerator. 
how does how a lot of people sort of go wait so who's actually doing the work it's real doctors yes 100% but they are are they in between um patients are they working on their days off in the UK, we have very tired doctors like around the world at the moment, but before the pandemic, they were tired anyway, and that sort of stuff. Seeing many people, you had a 10-minute slot and that sort of stuff. Give me a sense of where the sort of resource comes from. Yeah. I mean, our profile, I think, is changing. I think in the very early days, you know, four years ago, we and this is still true to a certain extent, we have a lot of people who are either re-entering or pulling out of sort of the traditional economy. So people who are taking maybe a light retirement or working mothers who are maybe part-time, um, they want to spend more time with their families, they want flexible hours, so they'll pick up shifts with us. Um, we have more clinicians every day who come with us full-time. They like the populations that we serve. Um, they want to do more of it. So it's really a pretty diverse mix, um, mm. but it's certainly not people who are squeezing in a visit uh, in between their already packed schedules. Um, what's the benefits of telemedicine over, say, the NHS or private medical policies? Do they conflict or are you all meant to be partners and skip along? No, I mean, it's 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 not binary. I mean, our GP at hand product is part of the NHS. We, uh, you know, we interact with the rest of the NHS healthcare system. Mm. Uh, you know, we, we were recently part of a, you know, a third party study which showed that we actually help reduce unnecessary hospitalizations by 35%. Um, which, you know, I think really drives a lot of savings for the NHS. So um, I would say we're, we're part of it. We, we don't yeah. stand in contrast to it. Um, I think the NHS is a really interesting thing, which a lot of people psychologically are attached to, whereas most people in the U U UK actually haven't usually touched it. They've been touched by it, but not themselves. It's kind of an interesting sort of more institution, something that they would fight to protect rather than, um, you know, fight to lose and that sort of stuff. It's... Um, I think it's one of those areas where uh, I'll talk about this later when we talk about you that people fall foul of because it's their personal data and things that they are psychologically attached to rather than the, the, the everyday realities that they sort of live with. I think telemedicine can help a lot of people. We've got preventative and acute issues, but it, it's a lot deeper than just chatbots and that sort of stuff. You've got remote diagnostics, monitoring, virtual care, enablement, uh, teletherapy, um platforms like you guys um how, how far are we in telemedicine's journey to mass adoption you mentioned that the pandemic sped you up where, where are we right now you know honestly i would still say we're at day zero um i think there's a ways to go you know on the one hand the the incentive to accelerate adoption i think is huge um you know acts telemedicine is a great equalizer Mm. Um, it removes barriers to access. It provides access to quality clinicians who may be outside your postcode who you may not otherwise have access to. I think every day, you know, I'm reading another news story about another sort of hyper-targeted startup as part of this ecosystem. Um, but the vast majority of the U.S., the U.K. still have not engaged with a digital healthcare provider, whether that's telemedicine or chat or things like that. So, again, I think it's accelerated, but I still think the future is very much in front of us. So you, you mentioned there that most people haven't touched it. Why, why is that? I think it's a perception issue. You know, what we find is when people do engage with us, they tend to stick around. They use us a lot. They can't believe that it. They cannot believe that first there's a human on the other end that they are listened to that it's it's a real doctor's appointment and in some ways it's more engaging than than other experiences they may have had. Um, 
I think it's also user preference. You know, in many places, people are still really focused on sick care and they're really trying not to get sick. They're trying not to use the system. So I, I really think it's a mix, a mix of issues. So when I think about that and what everything you've just said, mm. I'm that rich millennial button going off in my brain. I'd be like, is the service just for rich millennials? Who Who is it sort of aimed at? Who is it best for? Obviously, you've got lots of different customer profiles that you've just mentioned. But when you sort of give your VC deco, that sort of stuff, who's the sweet spot? So you're not going to like my answer, but the answer is that it really is universal. Like, believe it or not, people tend to get sick in, in very similar ways. So, of course, there's infrastructure differences mm. uh, between sort of Rwanda and the UK. But the reality is, if you look at our GP at hand demographic, we have, uh, you know, we have children, we have families, we have people in their 80s. Um, and so... I would say that, you know, while the early adopters may tend to look a little bit like your rich millennials, we have a very diverse population. And it sort of makes sense, you know, if you're homebound or if travel is an issue, digital care is really a great option for you. So, you know, like for our Medicaid population in the U.S., they're, you know, below poverty line. They benefit a lot from that virtual ease of access when they may not have, you know, standard transportation. So I don't think there is a typical telemedicine user or a digital health user. Mm. All right, let's get specific um, talk about Babylon. Um, you've been around for a while. You're somewhat a household name, but still a long way to go, as you've mentioned. How did you get to 20 million people so fast? Um, I think it was the power of what I, I hope people would say is a great experience. And I think a, willing, uh, a willingness to understand sort of the power that that digital healthcare has as a part of a broader ecosystem. So I think we've been really lucky to partner with forward-thinking governments, you know, like the UK as part of sort of the NHS, uh, mm -hmm. like the government of Rwanda, who really wanted to make healthcare accessible. I think those were hockey stick growth moments for us. Um, you know, some of our larger insurance providers also have the same access goals. They look at our results and they look at you know, what we're able to provide in the UK and Rwanda, and they want that for their populations. And, and so I, I do believe if you build a good service with a with great experience, it's sort of mutually beneficial to parties, you know, the sort of the growth follows. Mm. Is that the biggest sort of main way you will grow is through using national health services and that sort of stuff? Or do you think that word of mouth becomes sort of you, you you're going to hit that inflection point where you go, oh, yeah, there you go, hockey stick? You know, we do work with governments. We work with health providers and insurers. Of course, they have large populations. You know, those are big growth moments. But we also are direct to consumer. You know, over a thousand users in the UK choose, uh, you know, try to join our GP at hand practice every week. So I think it really depends. We aim to be accessible to users uh, in the way that they choose. So if we're covered by your insurance, that's great. That's free to the end user, free at the point of care. Mm. Um, if not, we want to be available for you, too. Okay. Um, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring up um, Babylon's past. There's um, NHS data side. Uh, you've seen some heads, headlines recently that you got dinged for your use of data. Your chatbot's been attacked previously. Uh, and you use the term diagnosis when apparently you shouldn't have and that sort of stuff. No company's perfect. Each is designed differently. But how easy is it to balance the data Babylon needs to be effective and create value um, and still keep privacy at top of the mind. Do you think the two can coexist or is that naive? Is, the, is there a trade-off inevitable? I don't know. I don't think so. And in fact, I think in healthcare privacy, um, it has to be first. And I'm not, you know, I'm not just saying that because that's sort of, you know, the line of the day. I think the reality is, you know, the data that 
people entrust us with is deeply personal and they only, you know, give us that data because we're transparent about why we use it and how we uh, use it to make their own healthcare outcomes and their experience, you know, exponentially better. I think transparency is important. Um, openness is important, but also deep respect for the data. So I, I think you can you can't really have one without the other. And and I think you know that's where things like GDPR and some of the regulatory frameworks are powerful. But certainly internally, like privacy, uh, is our top priority. Mm. Um, I, I, I've seen similar things to Twenty Three and Me and other services. That yeah or very personal data. I don't think it's ever going to go away until these sorts of services become commonplace. Um, but would, would you agree that there's a job to do when it comes to making terms of services a lot clearer and easier to understand? Oh my God, yes. Like, I, I don't know, I haven't met a single soul that reads, you know, all of these hundreds of pages that you get on any app, let alone these healthcare services. And it's absolutely something that we're working on. You know, I think users in, in our U.S. populations, Medicaid, for example, many don't have a high reading level. And so we are working to get like crystal clear, super transparent. We want people to understand what data is collected, why we need it. And it's ultimately their choice to share it with us. So, yeah, there's there's absolutely work to do ac- across the board, I think, in, in all industries, but certainly healthcare. Mm. Um, I, I agree. I, I think that's one of the biggest evils in the world at the moment, just the fact that, that people are relying on people not reading things. And that, yeah. that just, you know, it's not 2022, is it? Uh, sort of thing that's very much old school thinking. Um, a lot of people are scared about health companies and the data you have and then what you do with it, what happens if you get sold and that sort of stuff. The NHS is a prime example. Um, Babylon uh, has an interesting stance on data and how you use it. Um, walk us through that and how you pick partners. So, I mean, again, our, our primary point of view is that uh, a data is a user zone, right? And it belongs to them to use as they see fit. We want to be as transparent as possible. You know, we may not have always done a perfect job at that. It's certainly something that we're working on. And I think I'm proud of sort of the progress that we've made. But fundamentally, a patient's data is their own. Our goal is to make it accessible to them, make it uh, easy for them to understand, easy for them to use as they navigate other parts of the healthcare system and, and take it with them anytime. So mm-hmm. when we look at partners, you know, obviously we're looking for for providers and payers who are um, I would say sort of extremely conservative in terms of their own stance on privacy. And for what it's worth, I think, again, like the standards, HIPAA, GDPR, th- they are really raising the bar in terms of user protection. So, What percentage of your customers are through businesses? You mentioned before insurance and that sort of stuff. A lot of that, it's not similar in the U- UK to the US and that sort of stuff. We're a bit more flexible. But um, healthcare plans are a big trend that are coming through because of the pandemic. Um, tell me what sort of how you are push what you what one are you pushing? Are you pushing more consumers, more businesses, or is it equal? I assume not because one's easier to get more people with. But. Yeah, you know, the dynamic of the US healthcare system is unfortunately is there's no healthcare without insurance. Now the vast majority of, of individuals either get that through their their company if they're employed or they get it via the government. N- nothing like the NHS, unfortunately, but via Medicare for the elderly or Medicaid for those who can't afford it. Um, and so the reality is, of course, we partner with those providers to make uh, healthcare accessible. So quite frankly, the, the majority, in fact, all of it is, is coming through partnerships with insurers mm. in the U.S. What's the biggest issue uh, you think you're going to face over the next 12 to 24 months? 
Um, the biggest issue is, I would say, our ability to move fast enough to keep up with demand, but also our mission, right? Like, we are really focused on delivering a highly accessible, high-quality um, experience, and we're unwilling to compromise on that experience or quality. And so that's sort of, you know, that's the long pole in the tent for us. And so our ability to deliver a consistently excellent experience at an increasingly um, fast clip, I think will be a challenge, but I think we're one that we are well equipped to take on. What's the iceberg that's in front of you that you're keeping your eye on? The iceberg. Oh, I don't know if there's any, there's, well, is that what the captain of the Titanic said? I don't know. I think there there may be some choppy waters, I think, as you know, governments figure out how to regulate this. But I mean, more than anything, I'm really bullish on on the space in general. You know, I think some people say, aren't you worried about Walmart? Aren't you worried about Amazon? And I think, no, I think competition is is wonderful for consumers. I think it, it will result in a better experience. And my hope is that um, more people can benefit. So I would say probably regulation, um, Maybe some of the choppy waters, but like I said, I'm I'm optimistic. I love it. Uh, that that is a beautiful segue, actually. Um, earlier in the season, I spoke with Brad Stone, who's the author of the Bezos and Amazon bio books, um, New York Times bestsellers. Make sure you get them. Um, we discussed Amazon's plan for health and healthcare. It's obviously super early days for them, but you know the intent is there, um, and it looks like they've got companies like you guys in their crosshairs. Um, what effect do you think Amazon's going to have on the healthcare industry and yourselves? Look, I think it can only be positive. I, I, I can't, you know, emphasize enough how, and I think I can say this as an American without offending too many people, like how abysmal the general quality of care is for most Americans who are forced to choose between, you know, putting food on the table and paying a medical bill. That's just not, that's not, that's not right. That's not how it should be. Um, and so really, I think the more that people like Walmart or Amazon um, even Google, the more that they can do to help drive improved access, the better. And I think government should absolutely regulate and, and make sure that everyone's held to a high standard. Um, and so we welcome the competition. But at the end of the day, I think we're very confident that people will find that our experience and the quality of care, the work we do to match really you know, best in class clinicians with the populations they serve, I think it's going to be hard for them to to match. What's the point where what you've just said, more water raises all boats and that sort of stuff becomes, holy shit, they're going to kill us? I don't think, you know, a multi-trillion dollar industry is a winner take all. And I think consumers, like this is where consumer choice comes in. I think there's a lot of folks that love Amazon's ability to predict when they're running out of toothpaste, but mm. may be a bit hesitant um, for Amazon to tell them, I don't know, perhaps they're pregnant two weeks before they were willing to have that information. You know, I do think some of the larger companies will have issues with consumer trust when it comes to deeply personal data. And so in that regard, I think some of the smaller hyper-focused guys, um, such as ourselves, really are at an advantage. But again, this is one where I think competition really will, a rising tide will lift all boats for quite a while. I think you make a good point. I think Amazon's trust does sort of stop at the shopping cart for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, when you think about voice tech being able to detect if people are depressed, uh, that seems to be a sort of step too far. Do, do you think that's ever appropriate? It's kind of miraculous and black mirror-y, right? You know, it starts to get a little like icky for me. But again, this is I think it's super important that we give consumers choice. Like that may not be for me. You know, I, I didn't love when I found out Siri and, and Alexa are always listening, but for some individuals, 
Um, they may they may feel like that is important to them, given sort of their their psychiatric history or, or you know, maybe their access levels. So I think consumer choice is important. Um, but yeah, it's certainly not something that we are looking at in the immediate near future. It's a mm. little black mirror. Um, OK, back to you guys. Where's Babylon Health going in the next three years? I mean, what a question. I think, you know, we have, um, we're, we're going public later this year, uh, via SPAC merger that I think you mentioned. Um, I think this is a really critical moment in the evolution of healthcare. I think, you know, in some ways the pandemic has been a great accelerator for digital healthcare. There's also an incredible strain on the system after 18 months of limited access. And our job is to figure out a way to help continue to make the rest of the healthcare system super efficient so that we can meet people who have waited 18 months for care. So it's really about continued investments in the markets we serve. Um, you know, certainly rocket ship growth in the U.S., but also continued investment in the U.K. This is our home. This is where we grew up. This is an incredibly important part of our story. Um, and so I think in some ways more of the same, more investment. Um, I think some really cool features for, for our patients. Um, yeah. Would you guys ever partner with um, a, a tech company like Apple, for example? So many, there have been researchers and that sort of stuff. How, how closely are you sort of working with them? Because obviously they are the de facto device at the moment. They're not the only one out there. But they seem to be very heavily marketing it as a healthcare device. The Apple one seems to be, uh, sorry, the um, Amazon one seems to be a bit of a flop. Um, but yeah, how much is Apple on your radar? I mean, Apple's on everyone's radar. I think, you know, what they're doing with some of their heart rate monitoring is it's incredible. Come on, it's the future. It's like everyone feels like they're on Star Trek with their little walkie-talkie watches. You know, I'm I'm guilty as anyone. So um, we have conversations with tongue companies every day. Again, I think one of the real accelerators of digital care is the more integrations that users can opt in to have. So we have an integration with Apple Health. All of you users have the option to link their Babylon account with all of the data they have on Apple. Um, they're not the only people we talk to, but I think, you know, we really, of course, we have our pulse on sort of the innovation in the space, but we also have sort of our own innovation, as I mentioned earlier. So we're looking mm -hmm. at, at many different uh, directions. And who's driving those conversations? Is it more from your side or we want to do this or you allow us to do that? Or is it more from the tech people saying, hey, did you know we could probably do this? Um, I think it's a little bit of both. Of course, we always have our, you know, eyes and ears open to some of the really cool stuff that's going on out there. I think also there's a lot of companies that approach us again, like our mission to make healthcare universally accessible and affordable is, you know, sort of a North star, not just for us, but a lot of other providers. And, and, you know, I think people get excited about being able to help us deliver better care in Rwanda and to a Medicaid community. So we have a lot of inbounds as well, which is, you know, I think it's great. I think it's great mm -hmm. for consumers. What's going to be the hardest thing for Babylon to get right over the next two to three years? Uh, I think probably the same thing that's hard for any company that grows at a really, you know, rapid rate, which is, you know, we saw it at Uber. You have a wow experience and, you know, it, it, it's enough, like the wow moment initially is I can't believe I can have an appointment with a doctor in, you know, less than 30 minutes. I don't have to wait weeks, but soon that becomes the status quo and everyone provides it. So what's the next wow factor? So I think it's keeping that amazing experience or keeping people excited and engaged um, while growing very quickly and not letting, you know, not sacrificing quality or experience. It's very, very hard to do. I think very few people do it well. So we certainly have our work cut out for us.
Mm. You have multiple job titles and sort of calls on your time and that sort of stuff. How on earth do you schedule it all? And sort of how do you do what you do? Your job titles are very, very senior. How do you make sure that you keep the wheels on? You know, I think I like to think of myself really as a figurehead. All of the, you know, and that's not me tooting my own horn. The reality is I have an incredible team and really Babylon is full of incredible teams. But, you know, I think there's this, this myth of these, you know, amazing individuals. And I think that's true to an extent, but we are more powerful and we are successful because of like the exceptional quality we have at every level. You know, the team I have at Babylon is the best of my career, super diverse, super dynamic. I'm really here as an enabler for them. If, if the, the quality of talent wasn't at that level, like I couldn't do what I do. And I know I probably speak for the rest of Babylon leadership and saying that's the case. What would they say your superpower is? I think they would say I'm pretty um, authentic. Maybe they would say I build good teams. Um, I don't need a lot of sleep. That's another one. But yeah, I think um, we're really focused on culture and authenticity. And, you know, it's this working in a startup is really, really hard. It's really hard to do it in a pandemic. And I really strive to focus on making um people excited to come to work every day i don't always i don't always succeed but i certainly try so i I, i'd like to think that's what they would say i love that okay folks it is time for erin's desert island tweets um part of mouthwash where a guest picks a tweet or two that's changed their mind or way of thinking in some way so if you turn your attention to the nest you should see a tweet there by shreyas doshi uh at shreyash um, I hope I'm saying that right. George Bernard Shaw said the single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place, possibly the most important communication lesson ever. Erin, why did you pick that one? So a couple of reasons. Shreyas is actually one of my favorite follows, and I don't I don't have any idea who, who he is really in person, which I think is like the Twitter sort of thing. But um, he's former Stripe Twitter Google, and he has just really insightful takes on how organizations operate. And for me, this really resonated because I would say, like, full transparency, the biggest F-ups of my career have all been about communication, um, particularly in a global organization where you're trying to figure out different styles. But it is both the easiest thing to do and the hardest thing to do well. And mm. so for me, it's something that I will, I continue to work on. I think this is always an area of development for me. Um, and I think this was just a really succinct way of, of sort of teasing that out. Mm. Okay, uh, you picked another one, um, and that should be in the nest uh, now. Let me just double check. Yeah, so you've got the uh, John Burke uh, one. What if I told you there was a single intervention we could deliver in our cities that would cool them down during heat waves, reduce flooding, scrub pollutants from the air, boost biodiversity, improve public health, and even reduce crime? You wouldn't believe me, but it's true. Erin, what is that, and why did you pick this one? It's trees. Yeah. Um First of all, I thought it was fascinating. I know I, I just think it's fascinating, but for me, there's also a good, you know, analogy I think to technology, and and I think there's you know technology is unbelievably powerful. I think the innovations we see every day are are incredible, but because it's so intoxicating, I think there's you know there's there can be a bias to just overuse it. Like we just need these big wingding fancy solutions, solar everything, you know, quantum mechanics. But sometimes like the best solution is right in front of your face and it's about going back to the basics. So in this way, I think this is really about trees and getting back to our roots, like no pun intended. But yeah. I think there are um, sort of takeaways for other industries as well. 
I 100% agree with that. And that's why I partner with the guys at Ecology. When I found out how easy it was to offset carbon and that sort of stuff, I was absolutely blown away. Also, like how much people think that it takes to offset things actually isn't true. So it's like seven trees uh, for one transatlantic flight over to New York from Britain. So you, you oh. most people go into the thousands and that sort of stuff, but it's actually seven trees. So, you know, it's it just goes to show you there are, you know, you gotta, you got to get the data and that sort of stuff. Okay, um, your final one comes from Tom Lum. Uh, he says, to this day, my favourite science story ever is how we learn that bees can perceive time. Why did you pick this one? Okay, so this is one of the most fascinating facts that I have seen in a long time. So it totally made my week when I saw it. I mean, I, I love animals. That's one. Two, I think, how many times have you watched like an Attenborough special or Animal Planet? And they say something like, oh, you know, these monkeys are angry with each other because of X, Y, Z. And you're like, how do they know this? And this was just like a fascinating deep dive into how bees do, in fact, perceive time. And there's a lot on circadian rhythms, et cetera. But I think there's also a tendency as humans to just assume things or just perceive whether it's animals or people that are different from us as somehow lesser than or like, and I think, you know, I just, I, I thought this was really fascinating in, in many ways. Like many species are more alike than we would like to uh, often think. So that's why I chose this one. And I, I think it's a fun fact, quite frankly. So maybe yeah. a good one for a Friday. When we can, when we're allowed to have like proper dinner table conversations, it's definitely one for that. Um, sure. My, my favorite thing on, or the, the, the spiral I continually find TikTok giving me is this woman out, I think it's in Alabama, who basically goes around um, getting bee, uh, bees <laughs> out of places and the the ease at which she'll stick her hand in a load of bees blows my mind every time and she's got like queens in little boxes anyway i i urge you all to go on tiktok this once and just check out the bee woman i will post a link to it if i can find it but um yeah it's it's mad those people they have um, nerves of steel um right okay nerves of steel i think is a good sentiment to uh, leave the conversation on um i can't thank you enough for being part of mouthwash um uh, any final thoughts or advice for listeners when it comes to the power of health um, no, I would, I guess what I would say is you're your own biggest advocate. And that includes sort of educating yourself on the options out there and maybe being willing to try something that's different. And, you know, for those of you in the US or the UK, I hope you will consider Babylon if you do go on that journey with us. Definitely, definitely. Okay, folks, that was the last mouthwash for this season. We have had an amazing array of guests from Kung Fu masters to space analysts, New York Times bestselling authors to voice coaches. Uh, we have explored big tech, soft power, Amazon politics, influences, female empowerment, and a whole lot more. It has been a wild ride at times and a sobering ride at others. Um, thanks to all the guests this season for being so open, honest, and for making people more confident about the future. Uh, and Erin, you, you've done that as well. Uh, that's that's what we're all about at Mouthwash. Um, but don't worry if this is the first Mouthwash you've ever tuned into, uh, or if you've missed something this season. Simply subscribe to the Mouthwash podcast wherever good podcasts are found, including, but not limited to, Spotify and Apple Music. Mouthwash will be back for season three. Don't miss when that is by signing up to the email list over at mouthwashshow.com. You can also get the downloadable calendar there as well as links to all the podcasts I just mentioned. Let me know who you want to see on the next Mouthwash uh, through DM or use the hashtag Mouthwash Show and I will do my very best to work them into next season. Once again, my thanks to the amazing Erin Lee. Follow her on Twitter, download Babylon from the App Store and see if it's right for you or find out more first over at babylonhealth.com.
Please show your appreciation one more time with a shower of emoji for Erin as the lo-fi music plays us out. Thank you for joining and thanks for the beautiful folks over at Ecology for planting a tree for every one of you and all of the listeners that we've had in season two. We have planted thousands of trees. I've got to count them after the show. Uh, I have been Paul Armstrong. This has been Mouthwash. Fresh chat that leaves you more confident only on Twitter spaces. Thanks again, Erin. I'll speak to you all soon. <laughs>